good morning. It's good to see you all, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And by the way, uh, Wednesday night, I just want to echo that. If you haven't made it out yet on Wednesday nights, you want to try to make this be the first Wednesday you come out. It's the best time to get to know the folks, more intimate environments, and uh, you get to really get hands-on fellowship, discipleship. It's just a great, great thing. So if you haven't done that yet, circle that on your calendar, maybe make this the first Wednesday. Now we're back. We're back for good on Wednesday nights, and we won't be unback ever again. Okay, so we're just going to be doing that as we go. And let's um, all try to stay alert this morning. Okay, side joke for those who were here last week at the 9 a.m. No falling asleep service. Am I that boring? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's what I was talking about. Have you ever noticed in the gospel, <laughs> sorry, I threw you off, huh? <laughs> How Jesus was always eating? I think that was one of the things that I was most drawn to when I first started reading the New Testament was that Jesus was always eating, you know? I mean, remember last week we were talking about how he would frequent the town of Bethany, where he'd hang out with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, sisters and brother, they would always have a meal together. And then this past Wednesday, we talked about the calling of Matthew as a disciple. And as soon as Jesus called Matthew as a disciple, what did they do that very night? They went to Matthew's home for dinner. And the disciples were there and Matthew was there. And that's what the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's crusade is all about. It's a crusade in your living room, so to speak, based on the Matthew model, just inviting a bunch of people into your home for some fellowship. And that's what Matthew did. There were tax collectors and sinners there that night. And then what about Luke 19? Remember the scene when Jesus arrives in Jericho and there was that guy named Zacchaeus? Now Zacchaeus was a real short man and he feared because of the crowds that were flocking to Jesus, he wouldn't be able to get to Jesus. He really wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed a tree to get Jesus' attention. And Jesus saw him and said, hey, come down, I'll be a guest in your home today. Which in Jewish hospitality, that meant basically, hey, let's do lunch and you're buying, so to speak. And that's how Jesus approached that situation. And who could forget the scene in John 21, beautiful scene, the imagery there. After the resurrection, disciples are out on that boat fishing, trying to catch fish, haven't caught anything. And Jesus is there on the shore barbecuing some fish. I don't care if you like fish or not, that would have been some good fish. I think Jesus probably knew his way around a barbecue for sure. And then there's that wonderful invitation in the book of Revelation to one of the churches there in Revelation. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. Now, The reason I think that Jesus is eating and why eating is a big thing is not per se because Jesus loves food that much. Of course, he created food and we get to enjoy food, that's great. But there's something very special about the intimacy and fellowship that comes when we share a meal together. No question about that. In fact, in Jewish culture, to have a meal together meant to sort of become one you know, to a oneness, a unity was represented at that table. And if you remember a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul talked about communion as being a similar kind of thing. 
in which the people that partake of the communion become one in essence with the Lord and then also each other as we partake in communion together. There's a, a unification of the church body centered on the one thing for sure that we can all agree on, that Christ died on that cross for our sins. Well, and yet here we are studying the Corinthians. And here is a church that is anything but unified. We know because we've seen it throughout. There have been divisions all the way back in chapter 1 based on who their favorite Bible teacher was. There were brothers and sisters suing each other and taking each other to court in front of unbelievers. There was the problems with pride in the church where people thought they had so much wisdom. There was the problem of liberties being taken too far where I don't care if you're stumbled, it's my right to do this. I'm going to do it whether I want to, whether I care about what happens to you or not. And then even last week we saw the women were removing their head coverings, which in that culture was a symbol that you were spoken for, that you were married. We said, you know, today it's likened to a wedding ring, which I'll tell you, I'm not going to probably tell the second service. But as I was saying that, I realized my wedding ring wasn't on last week. So I don't know if you noticed that my left hand was in my pocket the rest of the service. That was brutal. <laughs> so on this morning, it's there, I am married. It's funny that we look at some of these incidents in the book of 1 Corinthians and we think these are so random and bizarre and we can't even begin to relate with dividing over teachers and arguing about our liberties and whether or not women should wear head coverings. And then last Sunday I was down at the beach with a couple and this woman in our church was telling us about a church that she grew up in in which they were split over these kinds of issues. In fact, this one in particular. They split over women should actually wear head coverings in church. And see, that's the problem here. Remember in verse 16, Paul said, if anyone seems to be contentious. That was the last verse last time. I almost think he's being sarcastic. This church is full of contention. And here's the problem with contentions. When there are contentions, even in a church where we're supposed to be Christians, everybody is 100% convinced that they're right. One of the most elusive things that there is, is self-examination, self-evaluation, being honest with who you are. Do you ever notice whenever there's a problem between two people, whether it's in a marriage, or it's in church or whatever, they're both convinced they're right and the other one is wrong. And we know someone has to be wrong if not both of them are wrong, at least in part. But that's the problem with contention. And that's one of the kind of sub-themes for our text this morning is the difficulty that there is, that I have, that you have, in honestly evaluating our own role in the issue doing self-examination and being honest with ourselves along those lines. Because if not, what it leads to is it leads to division. I'm right, you're wrong, we're now divided as a church body. Now, if there ever was a time though in which the people, even in Corinth, should have been able to set aside their differences, set aside their beliefs, their pet doctrines, their stance on meat being offered up to idols, it should have been 
in the scene that Paul's going to talk about this morning, when they would come together for their agape feasts. But the very meal that was meant to demonstrate unity in the body only further showed how disunified they were as a church body instead. And so Paul begins in verse 17 by saying, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Now we've already talked about divisions way back from chapter 1, but this is different. That was, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, sort of privately in their little cliques. He's saying here, even when they would come together for some sort of a public gathering of the church, they would break off into their little groups. Younger folks with younger folks, older folks with older folks, rich with rich, poor with poor, hang out with people that like me, that are like me, that think like me, that kind of thing. Now, to an extent, I think there is some need in the church for a little bit of segregation at times. It serves a purpose. In other words, I think it's good that we have a seniors group that meets on Tuesdays here because it gives seniors an opportunity to sort of identify and encourage other seniors and things that are relevant to what they are going through. I think it is wholly appropriate that we split the high school and the junior high group this morning, as soon as we could, because there are things that high schoolers want to talk about with the youth leaders that are not appropriate for junior hires to hear. There's a time and a place, as we did a couple weeks ago, for the women to get together for a women's brunch. So there's a time for some sanctified segregation, if you will. But there is also a very important need for integration within the church body. You know, for the diversity of the body, you know, to come together for us to glean from each other. I mean, you know, us young people, and I put myself in the category of young, to some of you I might be old, but for us young people, we need to get over it. It's really not that tough of a life. And you know what you do? You look at one of the seniors in our church and you learn from them. They have such joy. Some of those folks came down to the baptism and you know, made their way down to the waters, some of our seniors did, to watch children be dunked in the water, to share that with our families. That was touching to me. And I commented later, I said, you know, I really hope that I have that joy of the Lord when I am that age and I can come alongside a church body and support them along those lines. Hey, singles. A lot of times singles think that, well, their problems would be solved if they were married. Solution to that, hang out with married people and you'll find out that that's not all it's cracked up to be all the time. And the other way around, married people who think they have it bad, hang out with single people and you'll see that they wanna be married. And so there's a time for integration and there's a time for segregation. But in Corinth, it was all segregation. And the worst part there, I think, end of verse 18, what we just read, Paul says, in part, I believe it. For there must also, verse 19, be factions among you. And that word can also be translated heresies. That those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, You've destroyed the Lord's Supper. 
That's not even the purpose for you gathering. And here's why he says that. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, in those days, when they would celebrate communion, they would also celebrate an agape feast, a potluck, a fellowship luncheon, what we call it today. A more spiritual term is agape feast. They would first celebrate the agape feast, and then they would celebrate communion. And look what he says here. Over time, this agape, or love feast, turned into a competition for food as one person would cut in line ahead of the other in order to get more food. And not only that, not only would they do that leaving one person hungry or without being able to get through the line to get any food, another person, it says, was drunk. So you got selfishness, you got greed, you got gluttony, you got drunkenness just before we're going to participate in communion? What? Paul says, verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And how could he, when, as he said, there are those who have nothing, the poor people, the slaves, as there were many slaves in the Roman Empire at that time, they were left with nothing, while the rich people, they would bring in all the good stuff, the meatballs and the garlic bread and all that kind of thing, and they would hoard that and have their little click over to their table while the poor people were left with shrimp-flavored top ramen at best. And that's what was happening in the culture at the time. You'd be like, me today, in our agape feast, it's apropos, right, that we have a luncheon today. It'd be like me cutting in line and grabbing like six cheeseburgers and leaving you with the grilled zucchini left over. That's sort of what was happening in this instance and he says look should i praise you for this i do not praise you and that would have stung i think you get a letter from the apostle paul and he, he knows what's going on he knows the behavior that's indicative in these agape feasts that would have stung and it was meant to sting especially when you consider this attitude that was so prevalent among this church and it ran so completely contrary to the very purpose behind the lord's supper to begin with he reminds them of that the next here in verses 23 and 24 of the very purpose here what was this for to begin with you've gotten away from it for i received from the lord that which i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I think this is an appropriate time to talk about a little something as it relates to communion here, especially because of the way this verse is worded. Now, there are those, especially in Roman Catholic circles, that believe in the doctrine known as transubstantiation, in which the elements, when they partake of the elements, instead of being symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus, they believe at the moment in time in which they participate, they literally 
become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I have a problem with that for several reasons. But one of the reasons that is outlined right here in these verses, and that is when the Lord Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper, the very first night in which he instituted it with the disciples, he had not yet gone to the cross. His body had not yet been broken. His blood had not yet been shed. In other words, his body was fully intact. So unless you want me to believe that on the very first night, he only meant it symbolic, but forevermore he meant it to be literal, I have a really hard time believing in that doctrine of transubstantiation. Unless you think Jesus cut off a piece of his flesh in that scene and they all partook of his flesh literally. And there's no indication at all from the text that anything remotely like that would have happened. Now, that's not to say that evangelicals have their act down either. They have also disagreed pretty sharply about how they view the elements. There have been great arguments over this very simple meal, which again, ironically, the Lord implemented to bring us together as a church body. Now, allow me, as humble as I can, to beg to differ with almost everyone on this. And I know, who am I to say anything against Bible scholars that study this stuff and know what they're talking about? I don't dare even encroach upon this, except to say, I think this far more important than the actual elements themselves, perhaps, is what Jesus wanted us to do, which is to do this in remembrance of him. The ordinance, the observance itself, maybe just a little bit more important than how we look at the actual elements and whether it's really worth arguing about when it's all said and done. The bread which he broke for the disciples, he said to them, was broken for you, broken for you and me, broken for those that were in Corinth as well. And I think in a way, what Paul is trying to clue the Corinthians into is, our Lord's body was broken for you, and there is a complete and utter lack of brokenness in this church body. Now, when we talk about brokenness, some people are like, what does that term mean? Brokenness is humility. Brokenness is, I realize I can't do it. When I see myself in comparison to Jesus on that cross, I'm broken because I know that I'm a sinner. And I constantly have to operate from the disposition of, I need Jesus. I could have never done it on my own, and so I am broken. But because they weren't functioning that way, this had become ritual to them. They were participating in something that was representative of Jesus' great sacrifice, but it had no real corresponding reality in their life. They were just kind of going through the motions. And one of the reasons I believe that Jesus instituted communion was so that we could quite often get back to brokenness, get back to the death of the cross, the fact that we need to remember Jesus, remember who he was, how he lived his life. Sure, Jesus came to die on the cross, P 
period, the end. You don't even have to say any more than that. But did he not also, by definition, come to model how to live a perfect life? He didn't come and say, look, I died on the cross and this is how you live your life, but you live differently, obviously. I don't expect you to live like me. No, he modeled for us how to live a perfect life. And so by saying to Christians, do this in remembrance of me, he was in essence saying, hey, remember how I lived my life. Remember how I loved everyone equally, slave or free, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. I loved them all. Remember how I laid down my life. Remember how I lived sacrificially. Remember how I allowed them to place sin upon me when I was totally innocent of any wrongdoing. As a bunch of Christians stand up and argue and fight for their rights. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. When we do this, we get the focus, even if just for a minute or two, we get the focus off of ourselves and onto him. And that is so important for Christians to do in this day and age, because we're constantly bombarded with a meism movement. It's all about me, it's all about you, your desires, your wants, what will make your life better. You need a vacation, you need this, you need that. And we're so bombarded that Jesus sometimes says, you need to remember that I didn't need anything. I came and lived and died and sacrificed and laid down my life for the sake of others. So in the same manner, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And how soon after did Jesus have this conversation with his disciples that they forgot about him? <laughs> that very night. And in a way, it's kind of a picture of us as Christians. We're in here, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. And then a couple hours later, when we've sinned, we've forgotten about him. And so he wants to keep bringing us back to remembering who he was and what he did the ultimate act of self-sacrifice in all of human history truly agape love agape love which by the way corinthians paul would say none of you are acting like that right now and again when you consider what it is that communion ought to be speaking to, it makes it that much worse. He tells us in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When we participate in communion, and by the way, you don't have to just wait until we do it on the second Sunday of the month. For as often as you break bread, you ought to be proclaiming the Lord's death. Yeah, number one, because that's where your sins were paid for. By his stripes, we were healed on that day. But also, this is an ongoing thing, an ongoing realization in the life of a believer. He said, for as often as you do this, we need to be reminded to live agape-type lives. I don't know about you, but I don't, naturally live an agape life. I don't naturally live selflessly. 
it's much more natural to be selfish. And so I have to constantly be reminded of how Jesus lived his life so that I can model my life after him. And how was that? That he died, that he paid the price, that he sacrificed, that he gave way, that he submitted himself to the Father. Translation, look, people in Corinth, there's not enough dying going on. There's not enough dying to myself and dying to my wants and my desires and my theological position. There's not enough of that going on. There's not enough sacrifice. There's not enough love in the love feasts. It's supposed to be a love feast. And he's saying, it's not. It's a sham. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now this is one of the most mistaken verses in all the Bible. I think all too often people look at this here and they go, well, today I'm not worthy. So I'm not going to participate in communion. There's the old story of the Scottish pastor. And I can't differentiate between accents, so I won't even try. I'm sure this has happened many times, but there's a woman up at the front. She's broken over her sin, refused the elements. And he went up to her and he said, you take it. It's for sinners. Nobody is worthy. <laughs> That's what makes the cross the cross. It's completely as one-sided as it gets. All God's side has nothing to do with you. What he said there is, don't participate in an unworthy manner. Okay, well, what does that mean? He explained it there at the end of verse 28. He said, let a man examine himself. And then he says, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So he doesn't say, hey, if you're not worthy today, you might want to sit this one out. No. Examine yourself and then go ahead and partake. So what's the idea? I need to allow God to search my heart. I need to examine my sin, my role in the division, my role in the cliques, in the gossip, whatever was happening in Corinth at the time, being honest with myself about what part I played in the whole equation. Even of all people, Socrates was right when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living at all. You know, years ago, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, the saints of old, they almost all kept journals where they would write down their daily interaction with God, their prayer life, their devotion life, struggles that they had. They just keep this ongoing journal. I wonder if that's not a good tip <clears throat> for some of us in terms of being able to look back and kind of examine ourselves and kind of go, where have I been and where am I going? And you know, what's happening in my life? Is my life a broken life? Am I walking in brokenness right now? Or is my life all about me and what I want and what people think about me and how people 
perceive me, my goals, my accomplishments, what I want to be in life. Those are two very different things. Some of the men were here on Tuesday night for the sermon prep class. And one of the men was teaching out of Philippians. And he was talking about, you know, made a comment, something to the extent of how Christians, often we struggle, even though we're Christians, with this desire still to be a rock star, so to speak. Now, I remember at the time initially listening to that comment going, that's not my struggle. And I even remember, because I go, when I grew up, I didn't want to be a rock star. I want to be a, a professional athlete. But I know to this day, God could offer me the starting point guard job for the Los Angeles Lakers, and I'd turn them down. So at that moment in time, I was proud in my heart. Because I dismissed what the Lord was saying through that brother going, I don't want to be a rock star. But I do want to be respected, admired, appreciated, and loved, even if it's only in my own church family. And the Lord really ministered to me over the next couple days along those lines. And I almost felt like the Lord said, Hey, Joe, would you give it all up if the whole church thought you were a flop if people were writing books about how they couldn't believe that anybody got saved in that church because that pastor just bumbled and stumbled over everything, would you trade it for people coming into the kingdom? Would you trade it to win people for Christ? <sighs> That's a different kind of challenge. Rock star? All right, fine, I'll give that up. I just want to be respected, Lord. Am I? Are you? Are we willing to be broken? Are we willing to be whatever God would ask us to be for the sake of others? And so there's this important need for self-examination, for what's going on in my heart. And it's important we do that because, look, he's going to give us a little bit of a warning now about this, hey, so let a man examine himself. Again, which doesn't mean am I worthy. It means Lord, what am I guilty of here? What's my role in the equation? Where's my sins? I've got to confess that to you, get right with you, that kind of thing. He says, verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You're not really thinking about the price that he paid for your sins. And verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Or in other words, many had died. Kind of like what we saw a few weeks ago when some of the Israelites were infected with a plague or died as a result of God's judgment. It would seem that that was what was happening here in Corinth as well. For, and this is beautiful, verse 31, if we would just judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That's a wonderful promise from God, if you think about it. If you would examine yourself, if you would bring your confession to God, well then, he doesn't have to judge you. The chastening will be a lot better. You who are parents, if your kids come to you and say, I have a confession, I made a mistake, I blew it. Isn't the level of discipline going to be different 
on that child than if you catch them in unrepentant sin? It's totally different. So it's a beautiful thing here that God says, if we would just judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, verse 32, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And that's awesome also. That's another argument against those that would say that one can lose their salvation. Indeed, just the opposite. He chastens us so that we don't. He disciplines us so that we're not condemned with the world, he says. Therefore, verse 33, my brethren, when you come together to eat, so ears open because we're going to have a meal today. Wait for one another, number one. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Seriously. In the original uh, translation, that says, go to Burger King first if you have to. Don't hoard all the food in the agape feast line. Is that not practical even in our church? Come on. I'm not naming names. But God's saying, look, you don't just go take all the food. You got to make sure everyone gets their fair share. Now, I know no one's going to go to the front of the line today. You're going to ruin the whole thing. Everyone's, everyone's dieting today. No, that's not the point. That's not the point. It's being conscientious about everyone else around us so that there's enough for everyone. So he says, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. Less you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So there's this need, I think, seriously. Take the agape feast thing. It's funny. I don't care how many cheeseburgers you eat today. But take the agape feast thing and now apply it to your life and realize, look, God is challenging us just a little bit here to look at our own hearts. This is a hard thing to do. It really is. The easier thing is to go, no, you're wrong, and I was right. I'm the king of it. Explain away my faults with the best of them. It's pathetic. But this is the challenge. So I'm not challenging you. Don't, don't think I'm talking to you this morning and going, hey, you need to repent. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is what the Lord is showing us. Give me just a couple minutes. I know we're done with the text, but give me just a couple minutes as we close with this point because I think it's important, this need for self-examination today. I'll never forget, and I'm not um, hip to pop culture at all in any way. I know nothing. In fact, you could tell because it's like a 10-year-old example. But I'll never forget, and I don't listen to pop music or anything like that, but I'll never forget when that American Idol winner, Kelly Clarkson, came out with that song. You may or may not know about it. It was entitled, Because of You. I'll never forget lyrically what she was saying in that song. Basically, the gist of the song, and it's based on truth, she grew up in a home. She wrote that song when she was 16. I did a little research. And she's been out of shape because she experienced her parents going through a nasty divorce. And the gist of the song is, because of you, now I'm this way. I'm afraid. I cry in the middle of the night, and you should have known better than to do that in front of me. But how does she know that her parents didn't experience the exact same thing and now don't also have the exact same excuse? In other words, I think mistakenly and poetically, she nailed a huge symptom of our 
society, which is we have a victim mentality in our country and it's creeping into the church where it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault, someone's got to be to blame for this, but it can't be me. Someone commits an atrocious crime. And what are they talking about the next day? Where did society fail this person? Instead of that person was sinful, wicked, evil. We got to blame it on the teachers. We got to blame it on their parents. We got to blame it on all kinds of conditions in society instead of just saying that person is responsible for what they did. I was sharing with some of the ladies on Thursday night in a meeting about a story I saw in the news this week. Insanity. A woman who faked the birth and death of her twins that did not exist. Now, she has what they say has been validated, though I don't think it's remotely legitimate, a condition. A condition that causes her to knowingly falsify conditions. Now, how would that go down in front of a psychiatrist? Hey, doc, you got to help me. I'm just struggling making up these phony medical conditions. Well, why don't you stop? I can't. I've been trying for years. You need to give me medicine. So now you have this incredible convergence of a society that is completely immoral. They don't want any morality. Don't tell me what's good or bad. Stay out of my face with a bunch of psychiatry and psychology to explain away any unique behavior that there is. And now, no longer is anybody guilty of anything. Now, here's the worst part about it. Some of that, unfortunately, has crept into the church, where we do it, too. And here's why, and this is why, and this is my problem, and this is the issue, whatever the case may be. And because of that, it makes it very difficult, because what's the bottom line? What's Paul trying to do here? Why is he correcting their attitude and their behavior? because he wants them to be a witness for Christ. But how can I tell somebody that they're a sinner in need of a savior if I'm not a sinner myself? If I can't examine my own heart and be broken before the person I'm trying to witness to? How do I explain his amazing grace if all I did was steal a pack of gum when I was nine years old and there's really nothing in my life by which I rely upon his grace? And so, the need for God. Lord, search my heart today and show me. And you know, there should be no contentions if we were following this, ever, within our family. Because we should always all be willing to give way. You know, he's building up to something special, and I just realized it yesterday. This whole thing seems like the same thing when it's all said and done, right? He's building up, he's building up, he's building up. Next week, he's going to get on him again because they're arguing about the spiritual gifts. <laughs> My gift's better than yours. Comparing one another's spiritual gifts. So he's just beating them up, beating them up, beating them up, saying, submit, humble yourselves, give way, prefer the needs of others above your own, etc., etc., etc. all building up to chapter 13, which seemingly, when you read that, you can go to a wedding 
And someone can talk about agape love at a wedding in which there are no believers there. It's not even a Christian wedding and they use it because it is the textbook definition of love. What is Paul building up to? Why does he keep correcting them? Because he wants them to love each other. Because he wants them to learn what agape love really is and looks like. It's going to be at least a few weeks from now before we get there, but we're going to get to chapter 13. And so in light of that, we're going to have an agape feast today. Then let's remember Christ as we minister in and around each other. Let's remember Christ, agape love and what that looks like. And if you want in between services, before you come back, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Lord, thank you this morning for your word and thank you for how Lord you come alongside us and, and you correct us God and challenge us to be more like your son the Lord Jesus and indeed God all the days of our lives we will be working towards Christ likeness and it is so hard God because we can get from here in this moment right now a few hours from now in the agape where we can segregate ourselves or where we can be selfish or where we can be unwilling to listen or minister unloving or later on tonight with our family or our friends not giving way not taking responsibility not doing something so simple as to just pick up the phone and call each other and tell each other that we're sorry. Going to our spouse and admitting fault. Pulling a friend aside and encouraging them. Preferring others, Lord. Thinking about others, God. Pray that you would help us to make that be our focus, God. Not just today. Lord, as often, as often as we break bread, help us to remember you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name.